the idea here is failure, whether we're looking at this through a perfectionism lens or an imposter syndrome lens, failure is not our enemy. A failure is our friend. Growing up, my dad always said, you either win or you learn. And I have learned a lot more in my life than I have won. But those learning moments, those failures made me the person I am, you know, and I'm not perfect at anything I do, despite that small but loud part of my brain who wishes that I was. Um, But the idea here is that to this point, nobody's kicked in my door. The fraud police have not shown up to drag me off to the slammer. Hello and welcome to NCAGT's first ever podcast, They'll Be Fine. I'm one of your hosts, Hannah Park, and for this episode, Jessica Applegate, the executive director of NCAGT, will be co-hosting. Time and time again, we hear, they'll be fine, they're smart, they're already ahead of the game when people refer to gifted learners. Because of this sad misconception, too many students fail to reach their potential because they do not receive appropriately challenging curriculum and services. The National Association for Gifted Children reports that 73% of teachers agreed that too often the brightest students are bored and underchallenged in school because we're not giving them a sufficient chance to thrive. Our nation's education's policies narrowly focus on the achievement gap for struggling learners, which is extremely problematic for the widening excellence gap faced by high ability students. Most regular classroom teachers do not receive adequate training to recognize and address the needs of these high ability learners. This is even more pronounced for children of color, English language learners, and children from low income backgrounds. In addition, these teachers are under a prohibitive amount of pressure to close the achievement gap of their struggling students. And while this is a very important measure, it shouldn't be at the expense of our gifted and talented students. So here at NCAGT, we believe that it's up to us as parents, educators, and stakeholders to provide the gifted community the support that they rightfully deserve. Listen to They'll Be Fine to learn more about what you can do to ensure that your gifted and talented scholars are provided the resources they need to thrive. We're here because the saying, they'll be fine, just isn't good enough. This is the second half of our interview with Dr. Matthew Zakreski. In the first half of the interview, he spoke a lot about perfectionism, so make sure that if you haven't already, you listen to the episode just before this one. If you have, then carry on to learn a little bit more about perfectionism and really dive into the world of imposter syndrome. So with that, you say the maladaptive will either quit or obsess. Are those the major concerns for perfectionism in gifted students? Or would you say that there's another level entirely? What would be the major concerns for a gifted person with, with perfectionism? Yeah, the quit or obsess is definitely, that's the, that's the big thing we see. I work with a nine-year-old girl right now who she's on her third ulcer. A nine-year-old girl should not have had three ulcers, guys. Gosh, that's that breaks my heart. Oh my god! Yeah, it, it breaks mine too. I wish I had had her as a client earlier. Oh. You know, um, 
and she's doing a lot better now, right? We're we're very fortunate about that. And the idea here is that this is a person who sees the world very much in black and white. I'm either good enough or I'm not. I'm either valued or I'm not. And that black and white thinking sets her up to fail, right? And then in, in this case, she's holding that anxiety, that stress physically, right? I mean, literally it's burning a hole in her stomach, right? But some kids get migraines. Some kids get school phobic over it. Some kids have meltdowns. I had a kid who a couple of years ago who broke three bones in his hand because he got a 97 on a Spanish test, went outside and punched a locker and broke three bones in his hand. And the Spanish teacher was about to hug him to say, you did a great job. And she said, I did I do something wrong? I said, no, this is just how this person is wired. Um, so what I therapeutically, what I tell people is that it's not about saying you can't be perfectionistic. It's about making perfectionism work for you, not against mm. you. High standards are great, but give yourself a broader a broader safety net, someplace to catch you if you fall. Because the one thing that is true about life is that we are going to fall. Yes. Uh, well, and earlier you were, when you mentioned about test scores and things like that, I remember in college, I got a, I did my first guided reading lesson in front of the group mm -hmm. and got graded on it. And I got a 99 and I wanted to know where that point went. And at that yeah. point in my life, I was, that's what, I, that's how I was with everything. And yeah. something that has really helped me a lot was going to therapy. So I feel like obviously something that can help people who perfectionism is impacting their life in a negative way. Therapy obviously is an answer or not necessarily an answer, but something that they can do to help themselves. But what tips would you give to educators and parents? How can we support learners who are struggling with perfectionism? And that's, and thank you for your vulnerability there. I think a lot of people don't always feel comfortable saying that they went to therapy around stuff. Like I'm that. all about it. I'll tell yeah. anyone about my therapy journey because it yeah. has been life-saving, yeah. literally. Literally. I mean, and that just, and mental health professional, it just warms my heart to hear that. And like any anxiety-based disorder, perfectionism is a false friend because it, it sounds super logical. If you get a hundred on this test, you don't have to worry about it. That is, that's true. I mean, if you get 1600 on your SATs, you can basically handpick your college. That's, uh, that's great. But as my grandfather always said growing up, it's like, is the juice worth the squeeze? Mm -hmm. Right. And, you know, and sometimes it's not. If you got to crush 6,000 oranges to get a glass of OJ, I might just go to the store. <laughs> so a lot of the work we do with perfectionistic kids, either who aren't going to therapy or are resistant to therapy, is we expose them to things that are systemic that give them intentional experiences to things that are less cut and dry, less black and white. One of the best interventions I've ever been a part of for a really perfectionistic kid is he was having a lot of trouble maintaining weight because he he kept quitting sports. He, you know, he thought, I'm not good enough at soccer, so I quit. I'm not, I, I, I didn't make the first team in basketball, so I quit. So we signed him up for dance and he, of course, dance can be a very rigid thing, right? He was having a tough time with that. So we shifted him from dance to Zumba. 
the workout thing. Yeah. And his instructor was like, you're not going to get all these steps. Here's how you do the best you can. And something about the way that was delivered allowed him to exist in the space between I'm doing this right or I suck. And that's, I mean, fundamentally, that's what we're trying to give any perfectionistic kid, right? So for him, if he got 71% of the steps, that's that's great. That, that's awesome. But this kid getting a 71 in, in science class at school would have led to a three-day meltdown. But it was allowing him to engage in something and experience that idea of it doesn't have to be perfect. And I not only survived it, I actually kind of enjoyed it. Right. Well, do you think that there's a piece of that where he doesn't get scored? Like he's not being scored on the percentage of... That was a huge piece for him. And the school was very kind and they moved him to a complete subjective grading model. So they gave him what a lot of subjective ed- educators call the compliment sandwich, right? So it's a, a thing I liked, a thing I need you to work on. What's good about this? And he hated it. I said, you got to give me two months on this. He goes, I won't give you two days, Dr. Matt. I hate this, but we made him do it. And all of a sudden the switch flipped and it wasn't, I'm a good writer, right? I got an A on this paper about Tom Sawyer. It turned into, oh, my teacher thought that I have really good sentence structure. And she thought that sometimes I cut some corners and it was clear that I knew what I was talking about, but I didn't really explain it to the reader. But she said, I need to keep writing because I have a real voice and a talent for making words come alive. Mm. And I'm paraphrasing, but that was basically the thing he emailed me and said, whoa, this is awesome. I love this, right? Because there's a nuance to that. There's feedback, there's authenticity to that. That is far better than 93%. Yeah. But I think we tie our identities to whatever feedback we get, right? So I am a straight A student or I'm a good writer and I'm working on these things. It just feels so different. And I think also with imposter syndrome, I feel like our identities are kind of tied in there somewhere as well. So maybe we bring that from perfectionism or we bring it from wherever. And so can you define or describe for us what imposter syndrome is? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and the, the relationship between perfectionism and imposter syndrome is very well documented, right? Because if you are hooking your identity to, I am this thing, what protects that thing is sustained success at that thing. I'm a straight A student. I can't be a straight A student if I'm not getting straight A's. So imposter syndrome is this idea that I cannot internalize and own my successes because I fundamentally believe that I'm a fraud. And I'm worried that someone someday is going to come find me and show me that or prove that I am and I will lose what I have. Um, And it is... Like I said, it's the other talk I give that makes people cry because it's not just, here's a better way to say it. The difference psychologically between anxiety and fear. Anxiety is there's a bear somewhere in your neighborhood and it might come in your backyard. So you place your your face up against the glass window in the back and watch. Maybe the bear never comes. Maybe it does, but you are going to spend the rest of your day pressed up against the glass. Fear is the bear burst into your garage. 
Fear gives us freedom to move, freedom to do a thing rather than monitor a thing. So where this falls into imposter syndrome, right, is that this fear that someone's going to just come and knock on your office someday and be like, Jessica, we realize that you are not an educator, you're a business person, and you have no place in the gifted education field. Please leave. Please leave immediately. And you're like, I knew it. I mean, like, I, I wish I didn't, but I mean, yeah, this doesn't surprise me. You know, and that's, yeah, that's a thing. It yeah. happens. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, every time I walk up to give a talk, I'm still sort of looking around for the security guard, the guy in the black sunglasses and the ear thing. <laughs> like, Dr. Kresge, could you me for a minute? Like, yeah, <laughs> you got me. I had a good one. I'll show myself out. Um, can I get a cookout milkshake to go? But, yes. yeah, thank you, right. Um, <laughs> You know, and that's right. I mean, it's this real, it's this real thing, and it can so undermine us because he it encourages us to push away all the compliments and positive feedback, which creates this negative loop of I I'm not that good, I'm just fooling everybody. And then we end up miserable and anxious, and that's not fun. So are there multiple ways that imposter syndrome can present itself? Yes. Um, and if we see imposter syndrome like through the lens of anxiety, anxiety can make us run towards something, run away from it, or freeze. So the anxiety, you know, I, I had a uh, sales job after college. I was selling travel and I was very convinced I wasn't going to be good at this job. So I worked my butt off. Right. So that my, in that case, my anxiety made me run towards the problem. Right. I consistently was on the top of the thing, not only in sales, but in most phone calls, most emails, most contacts, right? I was, because I mean, I just burned up the phone lines because I was like, the instant I stop, they're going to drag me out of here by my earlobes. And sometimes imposter syndrome makes us run away from a thing. If I apply for this job, they're going to find out, I don't know what the heck I'm talking about. So I can't apply for this job. So you get really bright, capable people stuck in middle management, stuck in a substitute teacher job knowing that they can do more, do better, contribute at a higher level. But the fear of if I put myself out there, they're going to see that I'm wanting, I better retreat. Or, and this is vital, this goes back to the pressed up against the window looking for the bear thing, is that it, anxiety causes you to freeze. It's like, I would like to move forward. I would like to run away. Those things cancel each other out. So I end up stock still and anxious. It's the, if you know your crush is at a party and you go to the party, but you don't end up talking to them, you just sort of like lean up against the wall for two hours. That's the, you overcame your anxiety enough to go to the thing, but not so much that you could do the thing you're there to do. And a lot of times what we see this in gifted people with imposter syndrome is they'll work themselves up enough to apply for a thing, but they won't try very hard. They will send the application letter with misspellings or having not critiqued it or asked for someone to look over it, or they won't get the letters of recommendation because what it does is psychologically it protects you. It's like, well, I mean, I can get this job because of these stupid rules, these stupid rules, guys. I mean, it's the rules fault, you know, and allows you to sort of tap dance yourself into feeling okay, but the idea here is failure, whether we're looking at this through a perfectionism lens or an imposter syndrome lens, 
failure is not our enemy. Our failure is our friend. Growing mm -hmm. up, my dad always said, you either win or you learn. And I have learned a lot more in my life than I have won. But those learning moments, those failures made me the person I am, you know, and I'm not perfect at anything I do, despite that small but loud part of my brain who wishes that I was. But the idea here is that to this point, nobody's kicked in my door. The fraud police have not shown up to drag me off to the slammer. So I'm going to continue moving forward that the large groups of humans who seem to like me and like what I have to say probably are right. And that's okay. That's an okay place to be right now. Because as I, and I, as I often say this to my client, clients, you don't have to believe the good things about you. I wish you did, but you don't have to. But I hope you understand that I'm going to keep believing those things because that's my right to see you. And I'm going to believe those things about you until you can too. I love that. And I'm just thinking of so many kids that I could turn and say that to. Yeah. Can, um, I, can I tell you guys my best imposter syndrome story? Please. And it's local and relevant to where conference is going to be in, you know, what, five weeks, something like that. Yeah. Um, so when I was at Wake, Maya Angelou was there. And you had to apply to take her class, her senior poetry seminar. And I applied and I got in and they made me take the class. What's the word? Um, uh, audit. Because I had to take way too many classes senior year, which is an entirely separate story. But so they're like, you have to audit this class, but yes, you can do it. Cool. So I go. And of course, Maya Angelou does not teach on campus. She was not in Tribble Hall for my fellow demon deacons. No, we drove to her house on the nice part of Winston. Inventory, so, was it the one in Ventry? Yes, I was, I was like, how do you know that way? Of course. Because I live five minutes yeah. from here, yeah. <laughs> um, so we got in our awful cars because we were all in college. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, my 1995 Ford Explorer over there. Yep, that's right. We're, we're in her sitting room and she comes in. She's very gracious and she bit, baked us snickerdoodles. So we're going around the room, we're introducing ourselves, talking about the, um, you know, the, why we're here and what we're trying to get out of this. And finally came to me and I'm like, my name is Matt. I'm a senior. I'm from New Jersey. And I was like, and I have no idea why I'm here. I'm not a good writer. And everybody laughed. And it was that sort of nervous laughter. Cause I spoke to a thing that I think everybody else was feeling. Um, and so she sized me up and she's well, okay, Mr. Zakreski, let's talk about that for a second. Shall we? And she said, you had to submit a writing sample to get into my class, right? I said, yes, Dr. Angelo. And she said, cool. So one of two things has happened here. One is that you fooled me. You're a bad writer, but you convinced me that you're a good writer. Or I see some talent in you that you don't see in yourself. Now, I have been speechless six times in my life. And that was one of them. Yeah. She looked into my soul. I was like, oh my God. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, it's, and, and, you know, is the thing. I don't think there, it's an accident that I'm about to publish a book, right? It's, there's not a direct line between that moment in 2006 and this moment here in 2023, but there's a connection. There's a connection to the connection, right? So, 
that's the thing is that imposter syndrome is a false friend. It tells you like, don't do these things and you'll be safe. Sure. But if you're safe, you never learn. You know, to find out how high you can jump, you have to jump. Right. And that's what a lot of gifted kids struggle with because jumping in, you are taking on risk to jump. Right. But the thing that we get to do as the parents, professionals, teachers, educators, coaches that support and love our kids is we say, we will catch you. We will be here for you at the bottom when you land and we'll talk about it and we'll figure out how to do it better next time. And then we'll try again. So that's what we get to do, right? It's not jump for our kids. It's not make sure our kids never jump. It's making sure that we are building a structure to help them when they land. So do you, would you say that it's inevitable that a child who is struggling with imposter syndrome or perfectionism, would you say that it's inevitable that they carried that with them into adulthood in some capacity? Or are we able to step in in these ways that you shared your story or other ways therapy to help them to avoid it, to avoid carrying that in a negative or maladaptive way, as you've said? Not everybody deals with this and not everybody deals with it in all parts of their lives. So one thing that can be helpful to anyone struggling with imposter syndrome or perfectionism is to help them treat their experiences not as monolithic, right? I'm anxious. No, you have anxiety and you have that anxiety in certain areas of your life, right? You might not be someone who wants to go to a loud, crazy nightclub and jump around and there's like the lights and the smoke and all that stuff. Maybe that's not your scene, but like a nice wine bar, maybe maybe that's your vibe, right? Maybe you don't want to be in an 80 person company musical. Maybe you want to do stand-up comedy, right? I mean, like it's not a, you know, Anxiety tries to tell us our experiences are these giant immovable things. And in all honesty, it's much more nuanced than that. So we find the things in our kids' lives that are working and we make sure they pay attention to those things. And not in a, because you're doing good here, it means these bad things don't matter, but it creates that essential counter narrative, right? Because if anxiety is the only story your brain's telling, it's the only story you're going to listen to. Right. Well, okay. Yes. I'm anxious about this thing. I'm worried that I'm not going to be good enough to apply to college, but my parents and teachers and mentor all think I can. So I'm not saying I have to believe them, but I will acknowledge that they have, there's truth to that exists is the right way to say it. Right. Is that their opinions of me also exist. And that becomes the counter narrative, right? It balances. And you can give Yeah. (laughs) Yes, go write it down. You know, like I say, I often speak in bumper sticker. That works for some of us really well. That'll be my swag table at conference. I'll just make all my Dr. Matt therapy bumper stickers and just hand them out like hotcakes. Make sure um, you have the one that says, pay attention to the things that are working. Right. Sure you have that one. Because it oh, is I. so easy to let those things fall into the background. And because our brains pay attention much more to the things that feel gross or new or weird 
because our brains are like, are those things threats? Am I in danger right now? Our brain is an anxiety protection system, right? It's like, you know, scanning the environment for threat. But if you can see yourself in this idea of, okay, wait, hold on a second. There are things that are not going as well as I want. There are things that are going better than I thought. And there are a bunch of things that are in the neutral zone. That's the complete human experience, right? You're seeing yourself in three dimensions. And it really blunts the impact of, I am a fraud from imposter syndrome, or I'm not good enough from perfectionism. So, because I'm just trying to think of ways that I can, because I definitely see, I have students right now um, that I know are struggling with this. And so as an educator and then thinking about parents too, what are some tips that you can give to us for learners who are experiencing imposter syndrome? I think I'm hearing that I definitely need to make sure that I'm reminding them in being very, I don't know, generous with my my compliments and whatnot. What would you say? Well, unfortunately, the com- the compliments thing trapdoor. Okay. Uh, because logically, we meet people who are struggling or anxious with compliments with things to the alternative, right? I think I'm not going to make the team. Yes, you are, right? And it's like, well, ha, we've we've said the opposite thing. Therefore, we've helped. And sometimes that's helpful, but it also runs the risk of blowing that concern out of the water, is treating it like it's not real. So oftentimes, when especially when our kids are stuck or really struggling, follow the feeling, go to where it is. I don't think I'm going to pass this test. What makes you think you're not going to pass this test? Tell me about that. Be curious. Right, well, I just, I didn't study enough. Okay. How much did you study? Three hours. Okay. Three hours is a lot, right? So let's see how you do. And regardless of how, what grade you get on this test, that'll give us some data to say three hours. Is that enough? Is that too much? Is that not enough? We'll go forward from there. Also, when you say good enough, what is that number? What is a good enough score on this for you? And the more concrete we can be with our kids' goals, it allows them not to move the goalposts. You know, I want to get a 90 on this. Actually, a 97. Okay, so you really want a 97. You're not going to be happy with a 90. You know, you know, Jess, you know, if you ask your kids to clean their rooms, right? Do you want it spick and span like Martha Stewart's coming over? Or do you want it like not actively on fire? <laughs> right? Because there's a difference between those things. And as parents, we struggle because we, if we're not intentionally saying the thing we mean, we might say like, imply like it's okay, but really want a higher thing. Right. So if a kid says to you like, well, I got to do a good score. What's a good score? hundred. Okay. Listen, hundred is the great score for anybody. What's the lowest score you'd be okay with? I mean, I guess I could do like a 96. Cool. You're going to give yourself the ability to get one wrong. Well, yeah, but I don't want that. Of course you don't. Who? Nobody in this classroom wants to get not a hundred on the spelling test. It's like, boy, I sure hope I fail this. Right. Like, <laughs> no, that's not, that's not anything. Um, but when you define the terms, you are creating the structure to really feel that experience, not the other way around. Be curious and help set concrete goals. In psychology, we refer to things often in the big three, frequency, intensity, and duration. So how big the feeling is, how often it shows up, and how long it lasts. 
you are probably never going to get feelings of perfectionism or imposter syndrome down to zero. My imposter syndrome still spikes, right? And I've been dealing with this and in my own therapy and researching imposter syndrome for the better part of a decade now. But I can tell you that those feelings are smaller, shorter, and much less frequent. So you might say to a kid, hey, listen, I know you're having a bad anxiety day about this right now. I just want to remind you that when I started teaching you two years ago, you were freaking out like this six times a week. Dad, this is the first freak out you've had this month. So I'm not saying I'm happy that you're freaking out, but let us see this on a developmental curve here, right? You have come a long way. And thus, I hope you can give yourself credit for having come that far. So we were both in Indianapolis and you were there as a presenter and I was able to attend the session where you were on a panel on Sunday morning and you shared a story about a young man who was an athlete and a gifted student. And as we were preparing for this podcast interview, it really just stood out to me because we're really trying to um, go against that the general idea of they'll be fine. Everybody says they'll be fine. They'll be fine. They'll be fine. And so in so many ways, I felt like that story applied to this. So could you briefly share that story with us? And then any thoughts you have on the they'll be fine? Yeah. The, so I, if I'm, if I remember correctly, Jess, the story is about the, the track athlete. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I tell a lot of stories in case that's not abundantly clear by the point. <laughs> <laughs> People from the Northeast like to hear themselves talking out of town. So I was asked to consult on a case several years ago, really talented, gifted student, also a gifted athlete from a pretty impoverished community who had accepted a scholarship to learn at this very elite and prestigious public school in the richest part of greater Philadelphia. So he was doing well in the school. He was doing, you know, he has STEM classes. They had a makerspace. He loved it. Uh, but he was there predominantly on his track scholarship. And in his spring season, he ran the 110 hurdles. The season went first place, last place, first place, last place, last place, first place, last place, last place, last place, first place, last place. And the coaches were like, what? Like, you, we, we were spending all this money for you to be here. Like, we'll do better, Right. And so they brought me on because he was really struggling. And I took a look at it and I said, you guys are really focused on the fact that he's losing. I want to pay attention to the fact that he's winning because it's really hard to win the 110 hurdles. And so I was like, so can, can we talk about like, what's different on the days you win? And through some exploration and some time, we got to the, we got to the idea that he had to take a bus to another bus to a train to get to school on time. And if he missed the first bus, he wasn't going to get to school in time for free breakfast. And in his home, they didn't really have a lot. Right? Like he was not eating breakfast so his little sister could have breakfast. That's, the, that's what this famous reality was. And I said, you can draw a line from the days he had breakfast to the days he won the races. And I mean, you imagine this room filled with white people, right? Educated white people talking to a teenager of color right is just like hey wow we all screwed this up and you know to their credit they apologized right and we made a we made a solution right we we bought a box of cereal bars from Costco we stuck it in the counselor's office and whenever he if he did miss breakfast he could at least go and have a protein bar right it was something and 
we found things leveled off, right? What this is, to quote my colleague, Dr. Christina Collins, who's also on that panel, is, you know, we want to, we don't want to be a deficit detective. Our kids know they're struggling. They are very aware of it, especially if they have imposter syndrome or perfectionism. Trust me, they wake up in the morning thinking about that. They go to bed at night thinking about that. They're sitting in class drenched in flop sweat because what if they ask the one science question I don't know? We want to seek strengths and we want to celebrate strengths. You know, uh, one of the one of the things that, you know, it's one of my life goals is to stop this from happening is if you're in a parent-teacher conference, right? And the teacher's like, well, you know, Jill, she's doing great in science, but she's struggling in gym. I'm sorry, unless they're playing science ball in gym, I don't care. Those are different things. We have to say and not but, right? doing great in science and struggling in gym. We'll treat those as separate things as one does not undo the other. And un unfortunately, that's how we talk about kids a lot, especially 2E kids, right? Ugh, Mikey's brilliant, but if he could, can't get his ADHD out of the way, he'll never go to Harvard. A, maybe Mikey doesn't want to go to Harvard. And B, Mikey's a gifted kid with ADHD. The word with matters, right? So we need to celebrate our kids' strengths because by celebrating strengths, we create the rapport and relationship and, and frankly, momentum to deal with the stuff that's not working as well. If you start with a kid talking about how awesome they are and all the things that are going well, that kid's much more willing to open up to you about the stuff that's struggling. I didn't start with my client with who's at the prep school with, why are you struggling, son? Because everybody was asking him that question. He spent three sessions talking about how he loved hip hop and anime. Right. And we were, you know, we were, were sitting in my therapy office, right. Listening to some Kid Cudi. Right. And just, just really just talking about life. And after a couple of sessions, then we got into the meat of it, but we started with his strengths and interests. So you know, if you take nothing else away from this, from this idea of, will they be fine on their own? You always start with the kid's strengths and interests because that's where they want to go. We'll figure out the rest as we go. So to answer the question, will they be fine? Gifted kids can be fine, but they deserve all the support and structure necessary to be fine. So Dr. Matt, how can our listeners get in touch with you? How can they contact you? We have a really vibrant Facebook group, Dr. Matt Zakreski on Facebook. Uh, we have 4,500 people in there and it's mental health, it's nerd humor, it's gifted stuff, it's the occasional blog post. I That's a great place to not only interact with me, but some like-minded people. My website is theneurodiversitycollective.com. That's a lot of words. Um, so if you punch in Dr. Matt Zakreski into Google, um, not only will that pop up, but also Facebook group, LinkedIn, and then the various podcasts and such I've done because, you know, I'm, I'm basically the whole first page of Google now when you punch my name in, which is like, what, when did that happen? But that's fun. But yeah, the neurodiversitycollective.com is my professional site. That's awesome. Kind of a big deal. Uh, a little bit, right? Yes. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. Loves awesome. me. <laughs> well, and then I want to ask you the question that we ask every single guest that we have onto our show, and because it's always just so interesting to get, you know, different feedback. So in the world of gifted education, there's a lot of divide about how people feel about the term gifted. Oh, yeah. Would you 
agree that the term gifted is problematic? And if so, what would you rename it or how would you redefine it? Hmm. That is a fabulous question. It's an imperfect term, but I would also argue that I don't think the perfect term exists. So much of the problem with gifted as a term is how it is misconstrued and misunderstood by a lot of people, including people in positions of power, people who are in charge of schools, school districts, private schools, educational companies, they don't really get it. I often say, once you release something out into the world, you don't have control over how it is seen or processed by other people. To an extent, any term can be misconstrued, manipulated, misunderstood. So what I would say instead is, let's talk about gifted, but through the lens of neurodivergence. It is a different brain with different strengths and different weaknesses. And this is not a, my kid is better than your kid. My kid's going to Harvard, ha, 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 ha. It's it's my kid can do some stuff that is unbelievable and so interesting and surprising and amazing but also is going to struggle with some basic stuff that I think if you could trade with me for a day, you'd realize that it's no, it's no picnic. You know, I have a kid I work with who is doing graduate level calculus work at the university of Pennsylvania, one of the best colleges in on planet. And he still can't really tie his shoes. You're eight years old. You are in a graduate classroom with 20-somethings from all over the country, frankly, all over the world, doing high-level calculus, but you have to call your mom to tie your shoes. I mean, like, that's, you know, I, I don't know if I would wish that on anybody, right? So gifted as a piece of neurodivergence to me is a much better way forward rather than sort of taking the term gifted, throw, curling up, throwing in the garbage. Let's adapt and learn and move forward rather than starting from scratch. Yes, I knew you would nail it, and I love it. I love hearing Nailed that. Nailed it. <laughs> so, yeah, that was awesome. Did I, get did, I, did I do good? Uh, yes. 99.8. Gold star. <laughs> Best podcast ever. Uh. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on and taking the time of your schedule to talk to us. Everything you said is beautiful, and I'll probably be reaching out to have you back on if yes. you would be willing, because oh, I, I would so love much it. to share. That's awesome. I, I really appreciate your time. I appreciate the ability that we've had to work with you in the past. And we're so excited about March and the future. So I mean, as am I. Um, thank you. Thank you for everything. Yeah. And we're we are de- I'm debuting a brand new keynote there. So mm-hmm. it's it's very much in line with this color outside the lines thing. Um, so I'm I'm really, really <laughs> excited about it uh, i think we're gonna have a good time so yeah, awesome we're excited we can't wait thank you so much thank you guys have a wonderful rest of the day you thank too you.